Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about nuclear energy. Power plants use nuclear fission, which was first demonstrated in 1938 and immediately turned into bombs for World War II. But after the war, there was lots of research into using nuclear fission for cheap, clean energy. Dwight Eisenhower gave his famous Adams for Peace speech to the United Nations in 1953. And by 54, the US Navy had the first practical fission reactor running its nuclear submarines and aircraft carriers. The 1960s saw the start of the anti-nuclear movement with concerns over nuclear accidents, terrorism, and radioactive waste. But the growing awareness of fossil fuel greenhouse gas emissions in the 1980s led to a surge in nuclear power plant construction with an average startup of one new nuclear power plant every 17 days. Today, there are over 400 civilian nuclear power plants producing 10% of the world's electricity and 57 new nuclear power plants under construction. The United States has the largest fleet of reactors in the world with 93 nuclear power plants generating 18% of the country's electricity. France comes in second with 56 power plants generating a whopping 63% of their electricity and China comes in third with 54 power plants generating just 5% of their electricity needs. Both nuclear and fossil fuel power plants are thermal power stations. They both generate heat to run a steam turbine, which turns an electric generator. The big difference is that fission reactors split atoms to produce the heat and the byproduct is radioactive waste. Fossil fuel power plants, on the other hand, burn coal or natural gas to produce the heat and their byproduct is greenhouse gases. Nuclear supporters think that nuclear energy is a safe, sustainable option with zero greenhouse gas emissions that plays an important role in fighting climate change. The anti-nuclear movement thinks that nuclear power's radioactivity creates too many risks and that nuclear is too expensive and too slow to deploy when compared to modern renewable energy sources like wind and solar. We're joined today on Zoom by David Kraft. Mr. Kraft is director and co-founder of the Nuclear Energy Information Service. He has testified in hearings on nuclear power at both the state and federal levels and is responsible for creating the No Nukes, that's K-N-O-W, No Nukes series of videos in cooperation with CAN-TV Chicago. Mr. Kraft is also the co-founder of the Radiation Monitoring Project, which provides training and field monitors to communities contaminated by radioactive substances. Hi, Dave. Thanks for the opportunity. Brigadier General Chris King retired from active duty in 2016 and became Dean Emeritus of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. He holds a PhD in environmental engineering from the University of Tennessee and two master's degrees, one in civil engineering from Tennessee Tech and the other in national security and strategic studies from the Naval War College. General King is the founding member of the Global Military Advisory Council on Climate Change. Hi, Chris. Hi, thank you for this opportunity. I think both sides of the nuclear discussion agree that fossil fuels need to go. You know, climate change is proving itself to be just far too real at this point. And I think most of us can envision a future where renewables like wind and solar power the world. So I think the question really is what role does nuclear energy play in transitioning away from fossil fuels? Chris, would you like to start? Thank you for the opportunity. I agree with everything I've heard. And what we really are looking at is a risk analysis. All of these options that we have create risk. The one I like least is coal. Uh, from my experience of having worked with uh, 
sampling coal-fired power plants and, and looking at them from places in the Army where we had coal-fired power plants as their source of energy. And, and what I got out of that is there is a tremendous, it, it's like looking at uh, an illness, whether it's an acute illness, you have an immediate response, adverse health response, or whether it's a chronic illness where over time you get worse and worse and become sick and, and maybe even it becomes fatal. That's what we're looking at. I think when we try to analyze what are the risks from nuclear as opposed to the risks from coal, as opposed to the risks from other things that are contributing to climate change. Coal is the worst of all, in my view, and quickly, the faster we can get rid of coal everywhere, I think the better both sides will be. It is the least efficient of everything we've got. It produces, in my view, the highest risk because of the contaminants and the uh, toxins that are left once you burn coal for energy. Uh, everything from uranium to lead, beryllium, uh, lots of mercury, all of those things are created as a waste. And if you look at the United States, I think the waste that we are handling in the poorest way is the ash piles that are created every time you burn coal. If you look at every uh, coal-fired power plant in the country, what you find is this huge, massive amount of coal ash that's left. It, it's either in a pond or it's landfilled, but in any way, it is a source of potential health hazards for everybody in the immediate future and those people that are downwind of the coal-fired power plant. Oil is less toxic, but it creates those too. I think what I'm saying is, what we have ignored is the chronic risks that are associated with the fossil fuel industry and that they're not cleaning up right now. They just continue to pile up more and more ash, untreated, really unprotected. And someday in the future, there's going to be this tremendous requirement to clean all that up. That bill is not being paid now. And that's, I think, one of the things that we're making the biggest mistake about, doing the full risk calculation on both sides of the equation. Nuclear has risk. There's no question about that. But as we transition, we can't do without it. We can't get to a perfectly renewable energy solution without going through transition using all the sources of energy that we've got. Hydro. I, I happen to live in, in Franklin, Tennessee, in the middle of the Tennessee Valley Authority. TVA runs both coal-powered plants, nuclear plants, and then has a strong component that's hydroelectric power. Quite honestly, they're transitioning out of the coal uh, at, at a reasonable rate. I think that kind of approach is what we've got to get to. So that's what I'm looking for, a solution that accounts for all the risks and all the values that are there and do a, a, a total analysis, not just a one-sided analysis about nuclear energy. Uh, Dave, does nuclear help us transition away from fossil fuels or are we past that? Is it no longer needed? Well, it's always good to start a discussion off where there's agreement, and I totally agree with everything Chris said about fossil fuels. In fact, our organization uh, helped a colleague uh, from the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. Uh, he promoted a book called uh, uh, Carbon-Free, Nuclear-Free, a, a Roadmap for American Energy Policy. So there's no question fossil fuels has to go. Uh, I'm glad you also added, Chris, that the burning of coal liberates uranium, which is in the coal. And I would say the same for fracking uh, for natural gas. Uh, radioactive materials are liberated when you do that. Now, here's where we start disagreeing, though. 
Um, if we were doing just an abstract analysis of, let's say, nuclear versus the renewables, uh, that would be one thing, because then you have an infinite amount of time and, and resource and whatever. The problem is we don't have that. We are operating, or we should be operating, excuse me, in crisis mode to deal with the climate issue, and we are not doing that. Greta Thunberg was absolutely right, and it's embarrassing that a teenager has to lecture governments of the world saying, when you got a crisis, you act like you're in a crisis, and we are not doing that. So here's where the problem comes in. First of all, we have to make a distinction between the current generation of nuclear plants, which exists and have been existing, as you pointed out, Bob. But then there's a new generation that's being proposed by the nuclear industry and the Biden administration and others in government called advanced reactors or small nuclear reactors. We'll get into that a little bit later. It's important to separate those in part of the discussion uh, because the question comes up, do we need what we have now? That's a point of debate. And even here, uh, we see problems with nuclear power that are frequently just ignored. We had an instance in 1988 here in Illinois. That's the first time we actually looked at the thing called global warming. I did a presentation here for the League of Women Voters. And what we found in Illinois, which was the most nuclear reliant state in the country, it had 14 reactors at that point, was that in a heat crunch where the utility was telling everybody to dial down, they were taking nuclear plants offline. It didn't make sense to us until we looked into why that was happening. And the problem was because of the drought, which had been serious in Illinois and around the country and is happening now, uh, the rivers that they do depend on for cooling water and for the water to make the steam were so depleted, they were exceeding the EPA standards for heat discharge and radionuclides uh, dilution. We lost 100 reactor days that summer because of the drought. As we approach the climate disrupted world, which is going to be much more severe than what we had in 1988, we have a problem where it's not a question of can nuclear power uh, save us from climate change. The real question to ask is, how do we save nuclear power from climate change? Because we're finding out that nuclear plants don't operate very well in a climate disrupted world. We saw that in France, the poster child for nuclear last year, where they had almost half of their 56 reactors offline because of two things. One was the drought, which depleted their rivers, but also because of serious cracks that were found in 12 of the reactors that they hadn't noticed before. As you're speaking today, a news alert came out that EDF in France is going to take four and a half gigawatts of nuclear off of line this coming week because of the because of the drought that's occurring in France. Now, also back in 1988, in order to deal with this, we invented a program that we call the two by four rule of climate change solutions. The two represents the two constraints that we have. We don't have infinite time, don't have infinite money, and the IPCC says we have until 2030 done, the time issue. The four constraints though, is that any resource you decide to pick, absurdly it would be fossil fuels, but any resource has to evaluate it on four standards. It has to take the most carbon out of the air in the shortest amount of time at the least cost, and here's the one that people overlook, without substituting an equally dangerous or damaging worldwide problem like nuclear war, nuclear proliferation. That's our two by four rule. And we find that the present nuclear plants that we have violate most of those, and certainly the new proposed nuclear plants, the small modulars and the advanced, uh, definitely do not meet those criteria at all. 
So in a climate disrupted world, we can't afford all of the above. In fact, a, a colleague of ours, uh, a former NRC commissioner, uh, Peter Bradford, who was also the public utilities director of the state of New York and the state of Maine, uh, put it very succinctly. He says, we can never afford to do everything. The urgency of world hunger doesn't compel us to fight it with caviar, no matter how nutritious fish eggs might be. So spending large sums of money on elegant solutions whose may not work, uh, that provide little relief, is going to diminish the resources we have and we can spend on promising approaches. That's why we really have a strong objection to nuclear in dealing with the climate crisis. So, Dave, your alternative nuclear is, is moving quickly into the renewables, the wind and solar? Uh, not just that. And that's another thing that gets overlooked. And I, I'd like to hear Chris's opinion on this. We're finding right now that one of the big problems nationwide is transmission. Yes. There's almost 800 gigawatts of renewable energy waiting to get online that is bottlenecked. What do we have? Uh, two or 300 gigawatts is our total energy supply right now. So transmission has to be looked at immediately in it, and we have to totally uh, redo our system. But beyond that, we urge energy efficiency first, because there's a, still an awful lot of energy waste that goes out there. And if you're going to look into something that uh, should be either researched or put funding into, energy storage, and I'm not just talking batteries here, energy storage is a very, very important component to that. So it's renewables plus those other three. Chris? Uh, I don't I have anything to object to. It's just how we time all of this out uh, to, to achieve it. You, you can't build renewables as fast as we would like to or as fast as we need to. Do you agree with that, David? Well, actually, I have to disagree in this case. Uh, a situation that just happened here in Illinois proves it. Uh, our state was debating whether they're going to get rid of this moratorium on building nuclear plants, and the legislature approved that repeal. On the very day we were debating this in the legislature, an 800 megawatt solar plant broke ground in Illinois. Now they were complaining one of the things is, oh, we need power soon and we need these small modular reactors and we need system reliability. Well, it turns out that this 800 megawatt solar plant is gonna start producing power at the end of 2024. Almost every major nuclear plant that's under construction today is years behind in terms of, of going online. And the ones that are being proposed won't be ready until the mid 2030s. So I threw it back on the legislature and I said, which one is gonna give you more electrons and more system reliability? A solar facility of 800 megawatts that's ready next year, or your proposed small modulars that won't be ready until 2035. All right, well, I, I understand what you're saying. First of all, we completely agree on the transmission issues. We've built a system where we have the user and the source as far away as possible with the most cumbersome way to get between the two. And we've got to fix all of those things. And I think about the only thing we've seen from uh, Washington is a recognition that some of that needs to be cleaned up. We've seen anecdotally, like in Texas, where it has completely shut the systems down because not because of the sources, but because of the transmission problems. They can't get it to the people fast enough. So, so we're in accord there. That's a good way to get energy back as far as doing the total calculation. The other thing I would point out to you, David, is we're not talking about the United States. We're talking about a world problem. Most of the world, they're still decades behind us in the systems that they've got. And 
their ability to build high-end uh, renewable sources right now is minimal. So we've got to look at not only what we can do as a leader, we should be a leader nation. Yes. We should be doing the right things right now and, and doing what we can really afford to do that others may not. But we have to recognize that even places like China, certainly India, the other major players in this, and all of the developing nations are going to need a different kind of strategy. And we've got to work on different ways there. And so when I'm looking at it, I remember, I study these things from a national security standpoint foremost. What is going to provide us the most security in the world? And certainly we're seeing in the Ukraine where we have nuclear reactors that now have the potential to become uh, weapons of mass destruction in a conflict. That doesn't bode well for nuclear energy either. But we have to look at a total world concept when I start trying to think of what is the solution. And that's why I say it's everything above, because there may be some places that if they have a nuclear plant, we do everything we can to keep it running until we can afford to do some of the things, maybe build some hydro and these other sources for them. The only optimistic view I have right now is science is continuing to move forward with making renewable energy more and more possible, particularly battery development development and things like that are moving in the right way. And the private sector is doing a decent job of trying to move that forward. But it's the investment strategy that we go. And we're both talking about the same. What's our investment strategy to spend our, our money most wisely to get to the end solution that you, you describe and I describe? We're violently in agreement on that, what the end state is. And, and I'm glad you, you, you use that phrase, uh, all of the above, in a different context. The worldwide context changes that whole concept, and I'm glad you brought up China and India. In 2021, it was reported that China, its renewable sector, generated 71% more energy, just the wind, than nuclear in China. Solar was only 15% less than nuclear in China. In India, in 2021, uh, their renewables produced more than nuclear. Now, when I take a look around the world, I'm glad you brought up the Ukraine situation. Who wants nuclear? This is what disturbs me. And from a national security standpoint, I think we'll have more agreement. Saudi Arabia wants nuclear plants. Now, the last time I heard this, <laughs> still shining in Saudi Arabia. Come on. We know what they want it for. But the other ones that were more disturbing were countries like Bangladesh, which just a year ago was two-thirds underwater. Where are you going to put a nuclear plant in that circumstance? So I think what you described as all of the above means we need to look at every nation individually and every region differently than this traditional model that we put up here in the United States of big plants and spider webs connecting them. We have to rely on those local resources. Sun is shining in the Sahara, you know, um, things like that, and not force on them our Western model of big plants, you know, big webs, things like that. So I think there's a little more agreement there. And again, it's a national security uh, interest, not just a, an energy interest on that one. You've both kind of touched on the SMRs, the small modular reactors. I mean, the, these are reactors that can actually be built in factories and shipped to a location, modular parts. So they should be cheaper, more efficient, safer, because it's a much smaller radioactive mass you're dealing with. Dave, you're talking about that's kind of the future and we don't want to go there. Um, Chris, I'm hearing you're saying we might need opportunities to drop a small nuclear reactor on some country. 
boy, that was a bad choice of words, wasn't it? Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> um, pr provide a nuclear reactor to some country that doesn't have the infrastructure to get into renewable. Is, is that a viable solution or use of this new technology? What are your thoughts, Dave? Uh, first of all, I, we have to make a distinction between the so-called small modular nuclear reactors and advanced reactors. Uh, okay. They are technically different. I think Chris will back me up on engineering on this one. The NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, would view, and it's in uh, law as a matter of fact, advanced reactors have to meet a set of criteria based on safety and performance. Within the advanced reactor domain, though, are these so-called small modulars. And the NRC defines them as roughly 300 megawatts of electricity or smaller. Now, I bring this up because advanced reactors could be as large as the reactors we have today. Some of the designs are, are that large. And that's something we definitely don't want. Uh, but beyond that, the small modular situation seems to be the hot ticket item. And the more we look into it, the more problems we find. We First of all, they, they don't exist. There are over 80 designs worldwide that people are looking at. In the United States, we have about a dozen, and only one has been given any kind of a license to continue, uh, you know, to get a demonstrator going. And even they claim that first one won't be ready until December of 2029. So in terms of the climate issue, small modulars are off the table. They are not going to have an impact. And it's not Dave Kraft saying. It was Greg Yatsko, the former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, who said it. It is Allison McFarlane, another former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, who wrote a very interesting article about this just last month and had it published. Small modulars won't be available in time. They won't be available in quantity. But worse than that, the calculations that have been run so far show that, that on a per kilowatt basis, they will be more expensive than the reactors we have today, which are already requiring bailouts here in Illinois and New York and Ohio and elsewhere. And the analysis that's been done, depending on which design you choose, again, on a per kilowatt basis and compared to today's reactors, some of these small modular designs will produce twice or 20 times as much radioactive waste and of different um, forms and consistencies than the problematic waste that we have today that we don't know what to do with. So across the board, you know, you can make promises about they're small, you can move them around and put them on a truck. I wouldn't want to put them on a truck in Ukraine today. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, if we see what's going on uh, with the T-90s and the, and the T-80s over there, they're getting shredded by the munitions that are available. You put these things on a truck and you drive them around, you have a battlefield that's littered with radioactive material. So from almost every standard you can imagine, we think small modulars are a diversion. Again, it's taking money and time away from the resources we can do and put into effect before 2030. Chris, thoughts on SMRs? Well, I will always defer to David on the technologies inside uh, the, the nuclear development. But from a, a standpoint, when I look at it, how do I protect and assure the safety of those from an external threat. And the more you've got, the harder it is to protect it. The one thing about the nuclear, when you only have a hundred that you can protect, if we need to, we can harden and put a lot of force structure to try to protect that. If there's a thousand scattered around and oh, somebody's moving them around, our biggest threat, even with what we see going on in the Ukraine and Russia is still the terrorists. The non-governmental terrorist organizations that are out and around the world today, and that would be a—they wouldn't have to build their own bomb. They would have it 
and it would be around for them to use uh, and attack at their leisure. And then that's a very, very risky uh, from a force protection, from a uh, national security standpoint. That uh, that would be very, very difficult for us to achieve our national security goals in that domain. And even if you had stationary ones, which the larger small modular reactors are proposed to be, many of these designs are being proposed without containment buildings, like what we have at the reactors. Yeah. And one of the ways they're trying to bring down the cost of the small modulars is advertising the fact that, that they're going to be cutting back on staff, both in terms of operators and in terms of security. They're claiming these designs are so safe, nothing can go wrong, so they don't need security guards. I'm glad you're sitting down on this one, Chris, because I'm sure that should rankle you somewhat. Um, you know, we've had nuclear terrorist threats uh, in the United States already at some facilities, and we do have security guards there. Uh, the idea that you're going to build small modulars, and even if they're stationary, uh, without containment buildings and without secure staff, just is ludicrous. You're listening to The Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with General Chris King and David Kraft about nuclear energy. What about fusion? Uh, you know, fission's where we split the atoms, you know, releases a lot of radiation. Uh, fusion seems to, to be the holy grail of nuclear, um, combining atoms together to release energy. Allegedly, minimal nuclear waste, easy to shut down. I mean, they're not going to melt down or run away. I know that there's been some breakthroughs on sustained fusion recently. Probably the biggest news is that Helion Energy has a fusion reactor, and they've signed a contract with Microsoft to provide 50 megawatts of fusion energy per year by 2028. I mean, that's just a few years away. Um, two questions to both of you. Do you think Helion's actually going to be able to deliver that energy? And if so, does that change the role of nuclear? Dave? I am not really up on the fusion design, certainly not the Helion one. I guess I would put it, though, this way. Um, proof's in the pudding. They've been trying to use different techniques to get fusion going for decades. And last year, there was this big hoopla about getting more energy out of the plasma than they put in. And here's, again, where there's a misunderstanding about what the, the hoopla should have been about. Uh, the energy into the plasma coming and the energy coming out, is there's a, a ratio. It's called the Q value. And Q plasma value is different than the Q total energy value when you analyze this. And there's a wonderful YouTube uh, piece done by a woman named Sabina uh, Hossenfelder on, on YouTube. She's a German physicist, wry sense of humor, but really explains things that people can understand. She's pointing out that, look, it's great that you got that little bit of plasma to work, but when you take all of the energy it took to make your system work, you know, in terms of all the magnets and, and the lasers and the whatever, you're way short of reality. Then you have to deal with the materials that are involved, which, of course, you have to have an adequate supply of helium uh, because helium is necessary uh, in, in fusion reactors. So I, I guess what I'm saying is there are a lot of positive stories out there, but for us lay people, and I include myself in that, I am not a trained physicist, words have different meanings. And uh, we're finding that even common English words cannot mean the same thing. So I'm very skeptical about the fusion issue. Power to them if they can get it to work. But uh, if we haven't been able to do it for the last 70 years, I'm not so sure they're going to get it done in the next six. Chris, Elion? 
again, I defer to David, but the only thing I had read about this was from Lawrence Livermore, who's been at this for a while. And what they were reported with great uh, joy was they had finally gotten more energy out of it than they had put in it. But it was only like 20 percent. As David pointed out, that's not a whole system analysis. What they need is something that's like 5,000 times as much energy in the plasma as they put into it to get the whole system where it is a cost benefit uh, analysis choice that you would make for fusing. So yeah, it's free beer tomorrow. That's what we've been hearing from fusing for a long time. Now it's free beer 30 years from now and it continues. Somebody will probably get to a, a place but the clock is ticking much faster on the damage climate change is going to do than the clock is ticking on fusion becoming a reality in, in a way that it's helpful to us. Let's turn to the, the, some of the downsides of, of energy and all energies have their downside, um, you know, potential for environmental disasters with fossil fuels. We have a pretty consistent stream of oil spills, pipeline, methane leaks, all those things. With nuclear, we've had a few high-profile meltdowns, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. Um, I know the Persian Gulf spill in 91 covered an area of 4,200 square miles with five inches of crude oil, massive spill. Deepwater Horizon, by some accounts, still leaking massive amounts of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. The um, Chernobyl meltdown in 1986 irradiated 1,000 square miles, so just really one quarter of the area covered by the oil spills. So which is worse, both causing environmental disasters? Can we weigh those, Chris? Do we want to die from acute or do we don't want to die from a chronic illness? Because that's what we're really dealing with. The nuclear is an acute issue. Fossil fuels is the chronic. All of the stuff that they release into the environment, into the food chain, into the water resources, and the amount of the damage that that does for lifetimes. When I do the calculation, that risk is much, much higher. It's unfortunate, but there's risk in everything we do. There's risk every time you drive down the road. Just looking at it from a U.S. standpoint, the amount of chronic damage we're doing right now, anything that takes more than 30 years to do, it's too late, way too late. So can we do things to protect the nuclear resources that we got and make them drag on for a few more years as we do this transition? I believe that's a safer way to go than other options that we have available to us in different places. Because the clock is, it's really speeding up. I wrote a thing in 1998 about the environmental security issues, including climate change. And there I was worried more about water resources as a scarce resource and its threat to different places in the world. 25 years later, we're dumping a whole lot more into the atmosphere than we were when I wrote that. And we have made no progress in there. I think the clock is going so fast, we're running out of time. And so what that tells you is to get to where you go, you're going to have to take more risk. And I think that includes some of the existing nuclear reactors that we got and trying to keep them going to bridge strategies in, in the United States, but particularly around the world. Dave, I, th I think we all have this perception of a nuclear meltdown, just, you know, destroying massive amounts of land and, you know, everything around there being dead. Yet I'm seeing reports that the exclusion zone around Chernobyl is a thriving community, highest biodiversity and the thickest forest in Ukraine. And comparing that to like the Deepwater Horizon and, and the dead zones throughout the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, do, is our perception of the destructive capability of fossil fuels versus nuclear wrong? 
I don't know that it, it's, it's wrong. I find it irrelevant in a sense. The abuse that the fossil fuel industry is inflicting on the world must stop. I would love to see it defined at the International Criminal Court as a criminal activity at this point because of the number of people who are dying because of fossil fuel pollution and the ones who have died. However, the issue of risk analysis, and again, I'm not a mathematician, but I've done a lot of reading over the last 42 years on this. A risk analysis is only as good as your inputs. And it's the old computer Geigo situation, garbage in, garbage out. And our point of contention is in many instances, nuclear instance, uh, incidences and accidents have not been properly looked at or analyzed. I'll get back to Chernobyl in a minute as an example of that. When the nuclear age started, they were claiming they were going to build reactors that would not have a serious uh, core breach and uh, dissemination of the core into the environment for the first 10,000 reactor years. Well, Three Mile Island occurred at 1800. Chernobyl occurred around somewhere, I'm going on memory, around 2500. Something was wrong in the calculation there. <laughs> Uh, you have the stupidity that happened in Japan, where it wasn't so much well, the design to a certain extent, but the way the Japanese laid out their uh, facility there made it absolutely a, a, a target for a tsunami to wipe it out and cause meltdowns. There are ways of calculating these probabilities that are under question, is our point, and that will skew the determination of the risk involved. Now, the other thing about nuclear accidents is we see them as qualitatively different from almost any other accident you could imagine. And here's the reason why. I believe in outside of Chicago here where I am, the most deadly plane accident in U.S. aviation history occurred at O'Hare Field. Something like 260 individuals lost their lives. That was a tragic event. But when the event was over, they cleared the debris, they buried the bodies, and it was ended. When the fires were put out at Chernobyl, the accident continued and it continues. Now, the idea that it only contaminated a thousand square miles, it depends on how you want to define that because that plume went all around the world for three days as that was going on. If, in fact, it was the Swedes who detected the radiation first outside of Russia. Uh, so that's the other part about a, about a nuclear accident is it doesn't stay put. It moves and it'll continue moving. The third factor, though, and this is where the great unknown comes in, is what are the biological effects really? And here's where you need to get a geneticist on board here and, and maybe some biologists. The fact that these accidents are only talked about in terms of death is totally misleading because I, I met uh, children from Belarus who had incredibly awful visual handicaps that they're going to live with for the rest of their lives, which the analysis that was done at Western State University in Michigan concluded were the effects of ionizing radiation. Are there statistics put into the Chernobyl calculation? Probably not. There's the WHO's calculation that at least four to 5,000 people will die of thyroid problems because of Chernobyl. Is that accurate? Not necessarily, because they relied heavily on the statistics that were kept by the Russian army and, and the liquidators who were working around Chernobyl. And according to one of the Duma uh, people, that's the Russian Congress, if you would, uh, who was a investigative reporter as well, she finally got a hold of real documents saying that those people were ordered to not mention radiation in any of the effects of the medical reports that were submitted. So right there, you have a data contamination that is unreliable. 
which really questions, you know, how risky is nuclear, which is already an unusually different accident than, say, Bhopal or an airplane crash or what happened in Hawaii with, with the fire. We, we approach it differently. And we, we also don't discount the fact that genetically, these mutations or alterations, if they are, can jump generations. So we're not going to be seeing them necessarily for a generation or two or three or four. The issue of epigenetics comes in here too. What will be that factor in transmitting beyond the current generations? So it's not as clear cut uh, on the risk front that we've actually done a good job or an accurate job, I should say. Maybe, maybe we did as good a job as we could statistically, but we may not have put in all the factors that needed to be counted in that probability. So they've got valid points and, you know, that we don't know the impacts of long-term radiation exposure. Chris, you earlier mentioned the long-term impacts of exposure to fossil fuels, ash ponds, that kind of stuff. You want to weigh those? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Everything David said it is true. Uh, but the problem is, even imprecisely, we have to have a process where we can evaluate all of these things that are there in front of us. Uh, not only in space, but in time. What right. is the problem? Uh, a great example is what we just talked about, fusion. What is the probability that fusion is going to be ready by 2028? You can pick any number you want and, and throw it out there, but it is a probabilistic uh, analysis there. If they get all of these things to go in sequence without a critical path failure, then in 2028, they'll be making... Uh, fusion energy in Washington, D.C. But we have to get to a methodology that allows us to make coherent decisions. Now we just flip-flop around. Everybody in this debate needs to get down and say, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? And we'll find out that they all say the same thing pretty much. They'll frame it in a different way and all of those kinds of things. From there then, how do we build a plan that we can consistently stay with over the period of time we have to. You can't do this every four years and change change out governments and change out ideas and reach a goal. We will never get there. We fail miserably. And that's what we've done for the last 20 years of the climate change debate. But we will have to make something that we say is the reason, best judgment we have, how to evaluate alternatives and how that applies to reaching the ultimate goals that we have to achieve to develop safety and security for our kids and grandkids and those that follow. Let's just touch on, on comparison. And we're looking at nuclear versus fossil fuels versus renewables. Touch on mining and transport. I mean, all three of these systems involve mining. You know, we have to mine the uranium for the um, nuclear. Obviously, we all know about fracking, mining fossil fuels. There's also mining issues with renewables because of the rare earth elements and the new metal series. So that's increasing different type of mining. Can you weigh those? And also transport. I mean, pipelines for fuel, um, transporting uranium safely, um, you know, moving the the resources of the of the mining for batteries and solar cells around, and then we also have to consider um, waste disposal. In the case of nuclear, you know, how big is is the nuclear waste disposal and how safe is that versus ash ponds? Um, thoughts on that, Dave? Well, again, I, I don't disagree with what you're you're saying there, and again. Uh, the waste from fossil fuels is is just unconscionable. Uh, the the ash ponds in particular, and I'm, we have a Tennessean on, on on camera here who I think could attest to that after what's going on down there. But um, 
the nuclear waste issue specifically, um, I think is also one of those great misunderstoods because when I hear folks from the Nuclear Energy Institute or the trade groups speaking about how insignificant the waste issue is and we handle it wonderfully, uh, they, miss, they miss the bigger picture here. Uh, first of all, uh, waste, nuclear waste, radio, radioactive waste is often talked about in terms of the volume. That's not very meaningful because the hazard of radioactive waste is radiation. And that's really what you have to look at first. The volume is irrelevant. Uh, most recently, I've heard this story that if you had all the radioactive waste from the beginning of the nuclear age in the United States, it could fit in a football field 40 feet high. And I'm thinking, well, so try it, see what happens. Uh, <laughs> you won't like the results, I guarantee it. Um, but beyond that, when I first started this out, when our organization began in 1981, that football field was only 10 feet high. That's how long that that trope has been around, you know. So it's an image that kind of is designed to calm the public down. We've got it under control. Well, we don't. The law had said the federal government was supposed to have a disposal, not storage, disposal facility operating by 1997. And we haven't done it. As a result, in the United States alone, we have upwards of 80 to 90,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste with no place to go, just sitting at the reactor sites, maybe waiting for the next flood like occurred at the Fort Calhoun reactor in Nebraska a few years ago, who knows? Or some terrorist group taking pot shots at some of the canisters. Worldwide, I believe the number is on upward of 250,000 to 300,000 tons of spent fuel, which again, has not been disposed of and does in some cases present a proliferation threat. Those materials can be diverted, uh, particularly in countries that don't have either the resources or the political inclination to have proper safety uh, controls that, that Chris knows more about. So the radioactive waste issue is the elephant in the room that people like to dance around or put party balloons on and, and just you know makes light of. It's not, it's, it's definitely a deadly substance. It has to be disposed of and it hasn't been. We keep kicking the can down the road. We keep storing it on sites, which increasingly may be vulnerable because of climate change, for all we know. And it has a nuclear weapons proliferation potential. Uh, this is not a responsible way of, of waste management. As bad as the fossil fuel folks are, let's not say because they're so bad, the nuclear folks are any better. David's absolutely right on the nuclear. I would, I would just continue to say that particularly the coal, uh, the transport of the coal to begin with, and the massive amount of stuff we have to move around, and then the basically uncontrolled waste disposal that's going on out of billions of tons of ash that's left. Coal typically is 12 to 14% unburnable materials that's left after you, after you get your energy out, and, and by the way, in a very inefficient way. It's, it's a chronic issue absolutely every day. We really don't have a disposal. It's, a, it's like nuclear. We don't really have an objective disposal system that greatly reduces uh, the hazard that's presented. We stick it in the ground, but that isn't treating them at all, just like we're not doing with nuclear. So I will share with David that I would say it's even up. Neither one of them is being handled in a responsible way at all. 
It's just that there is a lot less volume to deal with in a responsible way in the nuclear energy than there is in coal and the fracking and all these other things. The waste issue, Bob and Chris, is the one important thing that shows up when you compare the three energy resources, coal, uh, fossil, nuclear, and renewables. And we pointed this out to our legislature this year. If you took all those other categories, cost and how soon can you build them and materials, you know, you can you can trade and trade and trade. But the one thing about renewables is you're going to get a gigawatt of electricity with no radioactive waste at the end line. And your fuel source is free. And no no coal ash and, and no of uh, those other residuals that we scatter around. There's so many different issues with all these energy sources. And the bottom line is we're here. We've got a climate crisis. We need to deal with it. What are your recommendations, Dave? We don't believe nuclear is a viable option because it's too slow, costs too much. There are still risks involved and there are hazards that they haven't even begun dealing with, like nuclear waste and weapons proliferation. We have laid out a plan of stuff that works It's working today, it's working in China, it's working in India, it's working in Iowa, and that is more renewables, more efficiency, work on energy storage, and finally, we have to rebuild the transmission system in a qualitatively different way. We may actually have to retrench in some areas because, as Chris has pointed out, there's been absolutely no action, meaningful action on climate change. And if that's the case, we are going to have to see a per capita reduction in energy use in first world and a huge investment in those regional resources that we agreed on in the third world. Chris, what are your thoughts and recommendations? I agree with everything David said. I think the the caveat I would have there is we shouldn't be spending any more money on new nuclear stuff, but we have to maintain and continue to use what we have as a vi- at nuclear as a viable way to quickly take the worst of coal and other fossil fuels offline as quickly as possible. That saves us the most greenhouse gas emissions by doing it that way. We're taking risks associated with those nuclear plants that are operating, but into the rest of the model that David described, I think that gives us the best chance of meeting short-term, middle, and long-term goals for getting fossil fuels out of the equation and getting renewables up to the level where we need to be in the total greenhouse gas emissions in the time that's left to do it. Otherwise, it isn't going to matter because we're going to go past the tipping point. My takeaway is that, you know, I came into this thinking that we had two different viewpoints, but we've agreed on so much. And I think that says a lot. So thank you both for joining us today. Um, where can our listeners go to learn more about this subject? Where would you send them, Chris? Well, I, I think you can go out and look. There's several books that have come out that uh, I have been reading recently. There's one that's the big optimist called Electrify. A guy named Saul Griffith wrote. He's for an MIT uh, engineer. Uh, and, and he's got what is the possible to get to an electrified uh, but I don't think the, it's got all the practicalities of the situation covered, but at least it gives you an optimistic view of what you can get to. And if somebody just wants to get started at this and understand a little better about the science and certain things that are going on politically and economically in the, 
in the climate world, there's a book called Hothouse Earth that has just come out. It's a simple little book. It's it's a quick read, but I think you'd find a lot of a lot of the facts and putting the story together pretty well. So uh, there's a I've got five books here that I've been reading uh, in the last six months that have come out. Two things that talk about uh, the national security, world security implications of climate change. And none of them disagree with anything we had here today. It's just that there are ideas that have to be taken into account and put into a plan. And I think that's where David and I, I think we agree completely on those kind of things and that approach. So that's my view. And Dave, uh, where, where do you want to send people to learn more about your work? Well, in the interest of time, uh, if people just want to contact us at neis.org, that's our website, or you can shoot me an email at neis at neis.org, then we can send all the resources out to you. Uh, but I would reference three three reading uh, things. I talked about one earlier, carbon-free, nuclear-free, and you can actually get that book downloaded for free on, on PDF from the Institute for N Energy and Environmental Research. That would be ieer.org. And the book title is Carbon-Free, Nuclear-Free. You can have the book. I mean, and it's out of date. It's It was written in 2007, which shows you how long ago we knew we could do this. And we just haven't. Look at all the time we've wasted. Two more current resources, though. Anything by Mark Z. Jacobson of Stanford University will give you extremely well-researched and up-to-date analysis of what we can do in the renewables front. So Google Mark Z. Jacobson. And last but not least, if you want more about the nuclear stuff on an annual basis, there's the uh, World Nuclear Industry Status Report. Comes out every year in September. And these guys are independent researchers. They, you know, they don't take money from governments or the industry or anybody else. And they just comb the data farms and put it together in a really blockbuster way. It is online. It's a huge file, I will warn you. And I think it's about 350 pages long, but it is definitely, if you want to find out about nuclear stuff, that's the place to go. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.